Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The U.S. stock markets continue to bask in the eye of this financial hurricane. Remember, we entered the hurricane following the September rate hike. And if you recall, I think I titled my podcast, The Hike That Broke the Camel's Back. And that's what really began the sell-off in the market. You know, we had this horrific fourth quarter Uh, The worst December since uh, 1931 may have ended up being the worst December ever had it not been saved by that uh, last minute Santa Claus rally, uh, which, you know, we had the biggest Boxing Day day after Christmas rally ever, which followed the worst uh, Christmas uh, Eve in stock market history. But we entered the eye when the Federal Reserve came out and rescued the markets by backtracking on their previously indicated path of continued rate hikes and quantitative tightening. In fact, we had a lot of people come out this week from the Federal Reserve today again, reiterating their new dovish outlook. I mean, everybody is a dove. There are no more uh, stock market hawks, kind of like, you know, there's no atheists in a foxhole Well, in a bear market, there are no hawks. There are only doves. And that includes people who are no longer on the Federal Reserve, like former Federal Reserve chairperson Janet Yellen. She came out yesterday and she said that she thinks it is very possible that the December rate hike is the last rate hike in the cycle. Now, she's right about that. It's not just very possible. It's probable. And, you know, other people, even we had yesterday, uh, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarita came out and, and he said that the Fed is going to raise rates fewer times than they had indicated 
in their most recent press conference. And, of course, by then they had indicated two rate hikes. And now he's saying, well, we're going to raise rates fewer than two, which, of course, could be one, but it could also be zero. And I think it's more likely that it's going to be zero than one. And he made those comments in an interview on Fox Business. Of course, I was on Fox Business the week the Federal Reserve raised interest rates in December. I believe I was on either the day before or a couple of days before. I can't remember exactly. I put the interview up on uh, my YouTube channel. And in fact, it's, I think the title of it is Bitcoin is not a safe haven because the first part of the interview, I was talking about Bitcoin, but then I talked about the Fed. And Liz Clayman had asked me whether or not I thought the Fed was going to raise rates in December. And I said, look, it doesn't matter what they do. I thought they would probably raise rates because that's what everybody expected that they would do. But I said in, in no uncertain terms, I said that the December rate hike will be the last hike, that after the Fed hikes in December, they will not hike anymore, and that the next thing they're going to do is cut rates. And of course, at the time I was making that statement, nobody uh, believed that. I mean, nobody thought that a statement like that had a chance of being accurate. Now, of course, pretty much everybody is out there saying that the Fed is likely finished raising rates, there are many, many more people now saying that the next move uh, by the Federal Reserve is going to be a cut. And, you know, when uh, Janet Yellen made that statement, I put something out on, on Twitter where I pointed out uh, that she is now basically saying what I said before this hike. And, of course, somebody responds on Twitter. Well, Peter, you know, you said the Fed was never going to raise rates, uh, so you were wrong. So you shouldn't be, you know, pointing this stuff out. And I wanted to, you know, circle back again and really reiterate this point because it's very important. And a lot of people are missing this. And they think that I was wrong because I said the Fed wasn't going to raise rates. I was not wrong. I didn't say that they were not going to raise rates. I said I didn't think they were going to raise rates because I knew that they had inflated this big bubble in the stock market and the real estate market based on interest rates being at zero, based on quantitative easing. And I knew that if they tried to normalize interest rates, if they tried to shrink the balance sheet, they would never complete the process, that they would have to abort it somewhere along the way and reverse course. They would have to go back to zero. However high they managed to raise rates, they'd have to go right back to zero. And if they managed to shrink the balance sheet at all, well, they were going to have to blow it even bigger when they had to do QE4. And so I thought, since the Fed can't do what it's claiming it's going to do, that it's probably better for the Fed to never try to normalize rates, then try and fail and have to go back to zero. Better to come up with excuses why you're not raising rates, but pretend that you have the ability to do it, than actually try to raise rates and then have it proven that you have no ability to do that. And I think what just happened, right, where you now have the Federal Reserve basically calling off all the rate hikes that they had planned pretty much vindicates me. And if you go back to the beginning, before the Fed made the first rate hike, which was in December of 2015, everybody assumed that that was just the beginning of the trip to normal. 
And at the time, most people thought normal was like three and a half to four percent, even though that was still historically below normal. That's where everybody thought the Fed was going. You go back and you get their dot plots from way back then. Three and a half, four percent. We were supposed to be there by now. In fact, we were we were supposed to be there before now. Right. And the Fed was supposed to be further into the balance sheet reduction. Remember, when they first started talking about shrinking their balance sheet, the Fed said it was going to take it back down to where it was before the financial crisis began, which was around $800 billion. And, of course, they've already way backtracked from that, uh, but now they're backtracking some more. But what just happened now proves that I was correct initially in my uh, belief that if the tightening process ever began, it would never conclude, that they would have to cut it off prematurely because of the effects that raising interest rates would have on the market. Now, yes, the Fed was able to raise interest rates quite a few times, but you have to look at the circumstances that made that possible. Because if you go back to the first rate hike, again, in December of 2015, the Fed waited an entire year before it raised interest rates a second time. In fact, it didn't raise rates a second time until the stock market was booming in the aftermath of the surprise win by Donald Trump. And I believe, and I've said this on this podcast before, had Donald Trump not won that election, had Hillary Clinton won the election, the December 2015 rate hike would have been the only hike. It would have been one and done. The reason that Yellen stopped raising rates after the first hike was because everything started to fall apart exactly the way I said it would. And because the market started to get killed and the Fed got nervous, they backed away from additional rate hikes until the coast was clear, until Barack Obama uh, had basically finished his term, the election was over, Hillary Clinton lost, right? Now Donald Trump was president. Obviously, Donald Trump didn't have a lot of friends at the Fed. Uh, Yellen probably didn't care, right? What happens now that Trump's going to be in charge? It's not going to be Hillary Clinton. Meanwhile, everybody's excited. The stock market's booming. They're talking about tax cuts. So under that environment, the Fed finally had the ability to raise interest rates for a second time. You know, of course, everybody who thought the Fed was going to start raising rates thought they would be a lot higher by then. In fact, it took the Fed forever to come up with the first hike. Go back to 2015. Most people, most experts in 2014 believed the Fed was going to raise rates in the first quarter of 2015. Why did they wait so long? You know, they waited so long because they were afraid to do it. I was right. They were worried about raising rates. They wanted to talk about raising rates, but they didn't want to actually do it because they were scared shitless out of what might happen. And when they tried it, because eventually they kind of had to raise them at least once because, you know, they were going to look like complete fools if they went the entire year without doing a rate hike. And then they eventually got to do one. And then they had to wait an entire year to do it again because they were so concerned, rightly so, about the effect that these tiny rate increases were going to have on this enormous bubble that they had inflated. But again, once Trump won, it was a bit of a different story. And then, of course, Donald Trump didn't want to reappoint Yellen, so he picks uh, Jerome Powell. And Powell, of course, works into a terrible situation. But Yellen has already started the process of rate hikes. You know, 
Trump is talking about how great the economy is. So what's he supposed to do? He has to continue with these quarter point hikes. But you still had all this enthusiasm. You still had all the extra stimulus from the tax cuts. Now the stock market was going up based on buybacks, right? Remember, the stock market basically stalled out. Once the Fed's balance sheet stopped increasing, the stock market stopped going up. The only reason the stock market got a new lease on life was because Trump came in and cut corporate taxes. And so now you had a boom that had nothing to do that part with the cheap money. Of course, without the cheap money, the boom never could have taken place. But before Trump came in, the only engine powering the stock market was cheap money, was 0% interest rates, was quantitative easing. But then briefly, once Trump was elected, we got the tax cuts, we got this fiscal stimulus to go along with the monetary stimulus. And, and then we had it targeted at corporations who could immediately use that extra money to buy back even more stock and to you know push more air into that stock market bubble. And that enabled the Fed to raise interest rates several more times. We got all the way up to 2%. Now, people want to say, oh, see, Peter, you said the Fed couldn't raise interest rates. Look, they're at 2%. I said they couldn't normalize interest rates, that if they raised interest rates, they would never get to normal. That's exactly what happened. I was 100% right. Now, where I was wrong was in overestimating the intelligence of the people on the Federal Reserve to figure that out. I said that since they will never be able to normalize rates, they'd be foolish to even try. So they'd be better off staying at zero. That's what I said. And for a long time, I was right until December of 2015, they stayed at zero. And then even after they raised them, they didn't raise them again for an entire year. So the reason, again, they were so timid and raised it such a small amount was for the specific reasons that I said they couldn't raise rates. And the fact that they stopped at 2% to 2.25% proves everything I said from the onset was right. And the same thing is going to happen with quantitative tightening. They are not going to continue with quantitative tightening. You know, for a while, right, uh, they said it was on autopilot. Now they've turned off the autopilot. It's now a data-dependent quantitative tightening. Well, you know what? They're going to call off the quantitative tightening just like they've called off the rate hikes, and they're going to go back to quantitative easing just like they're going to go back to a 0% interest rate. But right now... The markets haven't figured this out, right? They, they, they think that, oh, now because we got a friendly Fed, we got the Powell put, everything is great. We're not going to have a recession now. The, the danger of the recession is passed because the Fed is no longer hiking rates. And so, you know, they're not going to push us into recession with these future rate hikes. Doesn't matter. They still don't realize that the past rate hikes already did it. We're already guaranteed to have a recession, yet we continue to ignore all of the overwhelming negative economic news that keeps coming out. You know, we got numbers today from the Empire State Manufacturing Index. This number was supposed to come out at 12, uh, even was the number uh, following last month's upwardly revised 11.5. They initially had it at 10.9. So they were looking for a, a 12 number, and we got 3.9. That is the lowest the number has been in 19 months. So almost a two-year low in the Empire State Manufacturing. Yet, you know, the markets basically shrugged that bad news off. And, you know, now, of course, 
the government shutdown, I can already see this. They're trying to pre-blame the economic slowdown or recession on the government shutdown because now you have a lot of people talking about all of the uh, GDP points that we're losing every you know every week that the government is uh, partially shut down but I can already see that now that if we get all this week economic data uh, they're going to try to blame it on this government shutdown and of course we'd be getting a lot more weak economic data if the government wasn't shut down because a lot of the data is not being released because the people who are supposedly crunching the numbers and releasing them are not at work because they're not being paid. Uh, and so, you know, we're not getting those numbers. So in, in that way, you know, maybe the government shutdown is serving two purposes. One, it's keeping some of the bad news uh, from uh, going public. And two, it's just another thing uh, that people can blame the slowdown on or the recession. They can say, well, it's because of the government shutdown. But also that gives the Federal Reserve a, another reason not to hike rates or to cut rates by saying that, you know, the economy weakened because of the shutdown, not because of something, you know, fundamentally wrong with the economy. The economy is going into recession regardless of what happens. It doesn't matter whether the government is shut down or fully open. It doesn't matter if the Fed doesn't hike rates anymore. A recession is already a done deal. Again, we would already be there. Had it not been for the election of Donald Trump and the false euphoria uh, that it created, you know, the surge in business confidence and consumer confidence and the extra money that was used to bid up stock prices, the Fed would have stopped at one. It would have been one and done. They never would have gone higher than a quarter of a percent. They would have gone right back to zero. Uh, we'd already be doing QE4. We would still be in this greater recession. All Trump did is buy the nation a couple of years of more phony prosperity. But as I said before, this is going to come back to bite, uh, to bite us in the end, the Republicans, Trump, because now instead of all of it being blamed on Obama uh, and the Fed, it's all going to be blamed on Trump and the tax cuts and, uh, and, and tariffs and the wall and the shutdown and all that. And it is going to uh, allow the Democrats to win the election in 2020 and then, and then uh, you know, take power in 2021. Of course, the other thing that everybody seems so convinced of is that inflation is not a threat. In fact, even now that the Fed is not hiking rates, people are still not worried about inflation. And today, you know, Netflix comes out and announces that it is raising prices anywhere from 13 to 18 percent. This is the biggest price increase in the 12-year history of Netflix as a company. And believe me, it's not the last hike. In fact, Netflix is citing rising costs as the reason for the price hikes. But of course, you know, this is supposedly happening in an environment where there's no inflation. Now, you can only imagine the size of the uh, price hikes when we have inflation. The reality is we have inflation now. It's just that most people don't admit it or acknowledge it or accept it. But, you know, if you look at the spreads between the 10-year and the 30-year U.S. government bond, they are now at the highest they've been in just over a year. And I pointed that out on this podcast when that spread, that differential between the 10 and the 30 was right on the absolute low. And I mentioned that I thought that was a great spread trade to short the 30-year and go long the 10-year as a spread because it didn't make any sense to me that 20 additional years 
of inflation risk, of dollar depreciation, you know, that you got such a tiny amount of additional yield. I mean, why not just buy a 10-year and not have to take the risks of all the inflation and dollar depreciation that happens in the 20 years after that, that it seemed to be that it would make no sense for anybody to buy a 30-year when they could just shave the rate slightly and, and, and have a 10-year, not have to take 20 years of additional risk. Well, that risk premium is now starting to grow, and I think it's going to get a lot wider in the months and years ahead. And this is an indication that investors are starting to smell the stench of inflation and starting to realize how risky it is to loan money to the U.S. government for 30 years. In fact, it's very risky to loan money to the U.S. government for 10 years, but loaning it for 30 years is way riskier than that. And, and so why even take the risk when you're barely getting compensated for doing it? But this is just uh, the beginning, right? I mean, now that you know, oil prices have also stopped falling, we're trending up, we're still above $52 a barrel. People you know, breathed a sigh of relief on the inflation front when oil prices were collapsing, but that was when everybody thought the Fed was going to keep tightening, uh, that the Fed was going to keep shrinking its balance sheet. Now that people are changing those opinions, the price of oil is moving back up and it's going a lot higher. Investors still don't get this. You know, gold prices keep creeping up. We haven't been able to break above 1300. Uh, we get close, you know, 1294, 1295. We were down a bit today. But, you know, even the merger in the mining sector yesterday, uh, Newmont Mining made an almost all stock deal. I mean, there's a tiny amount of cash being paid to shareholders of Gold Corp. But Newmont basically merging with Gold Corp, but Gold Corp getting the premium price. So Gold Corp stock was up on the news. Newmont was down. In fact, it's down again today. And it's down like, you know, pretty big, maybe a 10% move down uh, in the two days since it announced the acquisition of Gold Corp. But the fact that the whole mining sector is not getting a lift again from this major uh, merger. We had another one not too long ago uh, where um, Barrick Gold and Rand Gold uh, merged. And now you have Newmont and Gold Corp. And now, of course, Newmont and Gold Corp are now the biggest gold company. Uh, the Barrick Rand Gold is no longer number one now that this merger has gone through. And just, you know, full disclosure, I own both these stocks. I own them personally. We own them for clients. We own them in funds and in separately managed accounts. As far as I can tell or my, my take on it, I think it's a great deal for Newmont uh, because I think they're buying Gold Corp very, very cheap. Um, for Gold Corp, I don't think it's a great deal. I think that the Gold Corp shareholders would have been better off uh, just you know going it alone. Uh, based on you know where I think the two stocks would likely go, but I think the the combination is obviously you know still a, a stock that I own and that I will continue to hold on to. But you know the fact that there isn't a lot of enthusiasm generated for gold mining stocks when you have these mergers, the fact that you're not seeing a lot of other small gold stocks jump up on the prospect that hey they may be next. Right. Uh, there's just so much pessimism in the space that even when you have the good news of companies merging and, you know, having some type of cost synergies, it's still not sparking any interest among traditional investors in either gold or the gold mining stocks. And also the fact that you have gold companies buying each other rather than just trying to find gold the old fashioned way by mining it, by exploring for it and digging it out of the ground, 
The reason they're not doing that is because gold is so expensive to mine and gold mining companies are so cheap to buy. I mean, rather than developing new resources, it's a lot cheaper to buy the resources of a competitor by buying their stock, right? So that's what's going on. And of course, this is further indication that the price of gold is just too low. And it is too low and it's going a lot higher. And I think the real catalyst that's gonna drive it higher is gonna be the same catalyst that's gonna drive the dollar lower. And that is going to be the about face from the Fed. The Fed not just you know indicating no more hikes, but the Fed actually cutting rates back to zero, which they will do, and the relaunching of quantitative easing, which they will do. And when that happens, that's the end, right? Because nobody is going to believe that it's temporary when they do it again, right? The whole success was predicated on the belief that it was temporary. I knew it wasn't temporary from day one. Right? That's why I said it was a monetary roach motel we had checked into. That's why I said we'd have more QEs than Rocky movies. Because I knew that it was a process that once it was begun, it could never end. That if, we li- if, you, if you live by QE, you die by it as well. And I knew that was exactly what was going to happen. The problem is, I was one of the only ones. Most people didn't know it. They just assumed that the Fed could do the impossible. And so they bet on the impossible. And now they're going to find out uh, that the impossible isn't going to happen. But when the Fed has to do it again, and when they have to you know, take interest rates down to zero for who many of those years? I mean, last time they left them at zero for six years. I have no idea how many years they're going to have to be at zero again. Um, the balance sheet went up to four and a half trillion last time. I'm sure it's going to hit 10 trillion next time. Well, no one is going to believe the Fed is going to normalize a $10 trillion balance sheet if they could normalize a four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. You know, if they couldn't raise interest rates above 2% when the national debt was 22 trillion, how are they going to raise it back to a normal rate when the national debt is 30 trillion or 40 trillion, right? The, the bigger the bubble gets, right? The, the uh, less they, they can they can raise rates. So we couldn't normalize it before. We'll never normalize it again. And then once people can no longer buy the dollar based on the expectation of future normalized interest rates and a future shrinking of the balance sheet, well, there's no reason to buy the dollar in the present. That was what was providing the bid for the dollar was the, the anticipation of a successful outcome of this process, a successful normalization of rates, of a, of a normalization of the balance sheet that was going to power the dollar, right? That's why people were plowing into the dollar, buying our stocks, buying our bonds. Well, when they realize that that's a bunch of nonsense, that that's never going to happen, that rates are never going back to normal because we have an abnormal amount of debt, that's it. And then the inflation is going to pick up. The inflation that we didn't get following uh, the initial few rounds of quantitative easing, we're going to get it, you know, in a much greater degree, because not only are we going to have to deal with the results of the inflation that we're creating now, we're going to have to deal with all the inflation that has already been created, because all that inflation has temporarily rested in financial assets. And so that created a big lag between the creating of the inflation, which was the printing of the money, and the ultimate increase in the cost of living, because there was a temporary uh, movement of that money into financial assets. So it just got more expensive to buy stocks and, and real estate rather than groceries and gas. 
But that's only for a short period of time. As the money comes out of the financial markets, it's going into the real economy. And you're going to see a reduction in the cost if you want to buy stocks and real estate. But you're going to see a big increase in the cost if you want to buy food and gasoline and stuff like that. So all that is going to be happening. And as the Federal Reserve refuses to do anything about inflation because it can't do anything about inflation without creating a tremendous financial crisis since it's going to kick the can down the road well then inflation is going to get out of control and that is the other problem that's you know that is how come this thing is not going to be a garden variety uh, financial crisis like we had in 08 as bad as that was this is going to be an old-fashioned sovereign debt and u.s dollar crisis so while we are still in the eye of this hurricane between the Fed, you know, signaling that it's not going to hike rates anymore and everybody thinking it's all clear and the next leg down in the stock market, which is coming, the next leg down in this bear market, which will probably coincide with uh, the economy weakening into recession when that happens or before that happens while we're still in this eye this is the opportunity to get more money out of u.s dollar assets to get more money out of u.s stocks to get into the foreign stocks developed in emerging markets to get into gold or get into these gold stocks before everybody figures out what they already should know right it's pretty obvious what's going to happen and it's not going to be uh you know, people are not going to be so oblivious to this forever. Something that's so obviously going to happen, right? You can't fool all the people forever, right? A significant minority are going to wake up sooner rather than later. But before they do, while they're still asleep, this is the time to act. This is the time to be building up your accounts at, at Europe Pacific, adding funds to your accounts, uh, opening up accounts. If you've been waiting and you haven't done anything, you've got this last chance uh, to get it done. You know, one of the other things, too, that's temporarily propping up the dollar, and of course, that's also keeping the price of gold a little bit, uh, you know, uh, capped as well, is everything that's going on over in the UK. You know, the Brexit, we had this vote today uh, where Theresa May went down in flames, lost by a huge margin. Uh, Parliament was voting on whether to accept the terms that had been negotiated uh, under which the UK would leave the European Union. And basically, they were leaving without actually going, right? Because people wanted to get out of the, uh, the EU because they wanted to escape a lot of the regulations that were coming out of Brussels. But based on this new deal, they were going to be subject to many of those regulations anyway. So it was kind of like, you know, yes, they weren't going to be a member of the EU, but they were still going to have to abide by most of what they were abiding by when they were a member. And they're still going to have to pay uh, taxes or whatever to uh, the EU. So it was a Brexit without a Brexit. Uh, and of course, for that reason, it didn't pass. But of course, the problem is just like politics, right? People want to have whatever benefits they get from being in the EU, but they don't want any of the negatives. I mean, you know, there's positive and negatives associated with with membership. I mean, personally, I think that the negatives outweigh the positives. Uh, but of course, you know, there's always going to be some short term pain if uh, they want to get out of a bad deal. Uh, but, you know, voters never want any of that. So this is a very difficult situation to try to figure out how to have your cake and eat it, too, when it comes to Brexit. But in the meantime, there's all this uncertainty over what's going to happen. And there's some uncertainty in the pound. The pound actually rallied back uh, late in the day as a result of this. Again, probably a buy the rumor, sell the fact. People were already selling the pound 
uh, based on, I think, anticipating that it was a no vote. And even though uh, the no's uh, won by a wider margin, uh, we still had short covering. And so the, the pound rallied a bit. But I think all this uncertainty, again, works to the dollar's favor. And anything that supports the dollar, obviously, is a negative for gold. Although gold prices, I was reading these articles about how many different currencies uh, gold is hitting record highs in. I mean, gold has been very, very strong uh throughout the last couple of years, as the dollar has been rising against other currencies, gold has been rising against the dollar. And even though gold hasn't made a record high against the dollar, it has made a record high against many other currencies against which uh, the dollar has been rising. But of course, the next step is going to be a, a record high in the dollar. There's no question in my mind that the price of gold is going to make a record high by a wide margin in the dollar. And the record high was about 1900 back in 2011, when people still believed that quantitative easing was a failure and that it was going to lead to massive inflation. They were correct. In fact, quantitative easing was massive inflation, and it is going to lead to a major decline in the dollar. It just didn't happen as quickly as people who were buying gold at 1900 believed it was going to happen. Obviously, people gave up on the idea that QE was a failure. They bought into the myth that it was a success, and that's when they dumped gold, and gold bottomed out at 1050 the day after the December 2015 rate hike. And everybody thought, oh, the Fed is hiking rates, so gold's going to go down. And buy the rumor, sell the fact, the first rate hike marked the bottom in the price of gold. And gold has been rising as the Fed has been hiking, but the rise has been limited by the expectation that the Fed would continue to hike. Well, now that expectation is gone. That has removed the headwind from gold. People do not expect the Fed to keep hiking. But what they don't expect is for the Fed to cut. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And not only are they going to cut, they're going to do more QE. So gold is going to go ballistic. It's going to take out that 1900 high because the people who were initially betting that QE was going to fail were betting right. They were just betting early, but because it took so long to fail, it's going to be a more spectacular failure now than it would have been back then. Now, of course, there are some people out there that think, ah, well, you know, the, the new gold is Bitcoin, right? They don't, they don't want to be in gold. They want to be in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going to replace gold. It is a superior store of value. And I've said many times on this podcast the idea that Bitcoin is a store of value is absurd because before you can store value, you have to have value. And Bitcoin has no value that you can store. Now, when I'm talking about value, I'm not talking about the fact that you can exchange it, that I can give it to somebody else. I'm talking about the value of a commodity, right? When I am storing my gold, what am I storing? I'm storing the ability to use my gold uh, as a metal. Right, whether I'm going to use it as jewelry or whether I'm going to use it, you know, in a, in aerospace or dentistry or te you know communications. I mean, there are things you can use gold for, and the beauty of gold is after you use it for something, you can melt it down and reuse it for something else because it doesn't lose any of its properties when you change its form. You can change its form as many times as you want, so you can store the inherent value of gold indefinitely. That's what makes it such a good store of value, one of the th reasons that it makes it such good money. But there's nothing you can do with a Bitcoin today, and there's nothing that you could do with a Bitcoin tomorrow, and, and so there's no value to store. But you know, if people want to buy it, uh, they can push the price around. And the reason I even wanted to mention it is because there was this ridiculous story that came out yesterday that the Russians or Russian government was going to diversify 
like $10 billion of its total reserves that it is moving out of dollars into Bitcoin. Absurd story. Uh, it was written on some small site, but then a lot of other uh, you know, articles picked up on it and, and ran this as if this is actually going to happen, right? That the Russians are actually announcing that they're going to buy $10 billion worth of Bitcoin, which of course is absurd. I mean, first of all, even if they were going to do that, which they're not going to do, but even if Russia had the intention of putting $10 billion into Bitcoin, the last thing they would do is let anybody know that that's what they're going to do because it's a very thin market. You don't want to let the sellers know that you're going to buy that much. You want to keep it quiet. I mean, you want to buy as much as you can, as cheap as you can. So the last thing you would do is, is, is let that out of the bag, right? So, but who would want to have a rumor like that started? Who would want people thinking that the Russians are going to buy $10 billion worth of Bitcoin? Somebody who wants to sell Bitcoin. Somebody who is looking to get the price of Bitcoin to go up on the anticipation of Russian buying so they can sell themselves. So if anything, this is some kind of a false rumor that got started by some people who are interested in getting rid of some Bitcoin. And they're hoping that this type of story will generate some interest to enable them to sell, right? to try to get some suckers into the market. One of the amazing things is that the rally was tiny. I mean, maybe three or 4%. You know, if, if this, you know, Bitcoin was still in a bubble like it used to be, a big bull market, you know, a story like that could have sent the price of Bitcoin up by 10% or, or more, right? I mean, people believe the Russians are going to make it an official reserve, but uh, it was barely able to rally. That shows you how weak it is. And as of the time that I am recording this, it's pretty much surrendered the entire rally. I think we were at 3,530 or something before the news, and we rallied up. We didn't quite get to 3,700, and here we are. As I'm recording this, we're back down to like 3,560, so not quite the entire rally having been reversed in the span of a day, but, but most of it. But look, those are the types of stories that come out you know, to try to keep the hope alive. Remember I said that bear markets slide a slope of hope. And these type of stories is what gives the hodlers of Bitcoin hope, hope that this big buyer is going to come in, whether it's the institutions or Russian government, some big buyer is going to come in to drive Bitcoin back up to 20,000, 100,000. Yeah, keep hoping for that. But the smart money is selling into these rallies. Probably the smart money is creating these false rumors to create the rallies so that they can get out. Uh, so, you know, my advice is to sell and position yourself in, in real money, in a real store of value. You've still got plenty of opportunity uh, to, to make money in gold, a lot of opportunity in gold stocks. I mean, these things are super cheap. And again, we've got these mergers. Normally, mergers consolidation would be good for stocks, but the sentiment surrounding gold and gold stocks is so negative. Why is the sentiment so negative? Because everybody is so positive. Everybody has so much confidence in the government, in the Federal Reserve, in the U.S. economy. And because of that false confidence, right, they are not buying gold. And if you want to bet against that, uh, that false confidence, if you want to bet against that conventional wisdom trade, then one of the best ways to do it is to be in, in, in gold stocks. Now, for those of you who live up in the Vancouver, B.C. area, I am going to be speaking at the 
Resource Investment Conference, VRIC, up in Vancouver, January 20th through the 21st. It's on a Sunday and a Monday. Most of my talks are on the Monday on the 21st. I do think I have something going on on the 20th. That's the Sunday uh, where you got the playoff game. So um, I'm not sure how many people are going to be attending. Although a lot, a lot, a lot of Canadians are into American football. Some of them are. But I was at this conference at the same time last year as well. I ended up having to watch uh, the, the playoff games from, from a bar there in Vancouver. So I'm going to be doing the same thing again uh, this, uh, this weekend. But if you're there, come by the event. I mean, I, I've got a keynote address. My keynote again is on the Monday on the 21st. I've also got my own presentation on the 21st. On the 20th, I think I take part in a couple of panels. Uh, there's a, a gold panel. I forget which one, but I, I, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of things up there. Uh, I think Gold Money is going to be there. They're, we're going to have a booth. Gold Money is going to have a booth at the at the conference. So I'll be hanging out at the Gold Money booth. So if you are there, make sure and stop by and say hi. You know, one thing that I'm nervous about is, you know, I got to fly up there from Puerto Rico and there are no direct flights. You want to go anywhere on the West Coast. So I have to change flights. And, and so whenever you're changing planes, especially in the winter, I fly through Chicago on the way there. I think Newark on the way back. So there's always a chance that you miss the connection. And then it's a then it's a real nightmare. Although adding to the supposed problems now is the slowdown at the TSA, because, of course, you know, the TSA, they're now government employees and they're not getting paid. Right. But I guess they're showing up for work. Of course, they're going to get paid eventually. Right. Everybody is going to get paid. Uh, who uh, is, uh, you know, working for the government, even if the paychecks aren't coming now, the paychecks are coming eventually. In fact, I read that uh, they're even encouraging, I think, people who work for the government to file for unemployment benefits during the the shutdown, which apparently they're going to have to give back after the shutdown is over and they get all their back pay. Although I wonder how what their success rate is going to be in getting that money back. If people got unemployment benefits during the shutdown, are they actually going to be able to write a check and pay those uh, benefits back? In fact, the government should cross-reference it. And if you collected unemployment, they should subtract that from your pay before they give it to you. But I'm sure that is not going to happen. Right, they're just gonna gonna rely on the honesty of uh, their employees to return uh, their uh, their unemployment money. But apparently, I've read that a lot of these TFA agents are not excited about the prospect of working for free. Uh, so a lot of them are calling in sick or not showing up, and so that could be contributing to a larger wait times at the uh, at the airports. And, you know, of course, this is another reason why we shouldn't even have a TSA. I mean. All of this happened because of September 11th, right? Before September 11th, the security was provided by the the airports themselves, right? I mean, it was the, the airports provided security, and it was nothing like what we have now. I mean, it used to be a pleasure. I mean, you went to the airport. I mean, it was no big deal. In fact, you know, they today, you know, all the security is getting into the plane. There's no security at all. When it comes to your luggage, right? I mean, I mean, anybody could just walk to the carousel and take your luggage, which is one of the reasons that I are very reluctant to check bags, is you have no idea who's going to take that bag. I mean, if you don't get to the to the turnstile first, I mean, somebody can easily. Nobody ch- looks at the claim checks. I remember, you know, when I was younger, I mean, you had to had a claim check. There was always somebody there uh, waiting and checking all the claim checks when you left to make sure that the bag that you were taking actually belonged to you. They don't do that anymore. Anybody can grab any bag because all the security is getting on the plane. There's no security at all uh, getting off. But, you know, now we have the federal government 
uh, taking charge of security. And it's a complete waste of money, right? I mean, it takes forever to get on a plane now. And none of this security is doing anything. I mean, people would say, oh, this is, you know, keeping us safe because we haven't had any terrorist attacks since 9-11. Well, that doesn't prove anything. I mean, look how many years we went without a terrorist attack before 9-11, and we didn't have the TSA. There is no way that the TSA is the reason that we haven't had any other uh, uh, terrorist attacks. I believe that we wouldn't have had another terrorist attack even if we had no TSA. The, you know, the main reason that we're not going to have another 9-11 type incident is because we've changed policies since 9-11 on the plane. Remember, the official government policy prior to 9-11 was if somebody hijacked the plane, well, you just did what they said. The main thing was let's land the plane safely. You know, let's not take any chances with the plane in the air. So if you get hijacked, just obey whatever they tell you to do and just, you know, let the plane get landed. And then the government will come and they'll try to take the hijackers out, you know, on the ground or maybe they'll release the, the passengers. So everybody knew that was our policy. That's what made it so easy uh, for these guys to uh, to to uh, take over the plane because people expected that they were going to just land the plane. Nobody thought they were going to go kamikaze and turn the plane into a missile and fly it into a building. Okay, well, now we know that people will do that. So what do we have now, right? The, the doors are locked, right? If somebody gets on a plane now with a knife, they're not getting into the cockpit. Those cockpit doors are shut and nobody is getting in. That's all you need, right? That's the only policy that had to be changed we don't need this whole TSA. In fact, I was reading this article that, you know, they have government agents that will, you know, test the TSA by by posing as passengers and they have guns or bomb material in their bag and they bring it through and they try to see how often the TSA can actually find this material. And something like, you know, 95% of the time it gets through. They don't even find it. So, I mean, to the extent that a terrorist is trying to smuggle something on the plane, chances are... The TSA is not going to even find it. Yeah, you know, they'll find your little water bottle, you know, your deodorant or your sunscreen. I remember one time they, they took a nail file from me. I, you know, I had this little, uh, you know, money clip. And inside the money clip, you know, you could pull it out and there was a nail file. It was probably like a half inch long. And they, they oh, they're going to take that. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna break through the cockpit door with a half inch nail file. I'm going to use that to take down an airplane. I mean, come on. But, I mean, the TSA is there doing all this ridiculous stuff. You know, one time I was traveling with my family. I had my wife, two kids. Our nanny was traveling with us. And I think my, my daughter at the time was under one years old. I mean, she's about two and a half years old now. So she was under one. She was still in a stroller, still wearing diapers. And um, after we get through security, they tell us that Lillian Schiff, which is my daughter, that, um, you know, her boarding pass was pulled for extra extra scrutiny now, this happens to me once in a while where you know they you just been randomly selected and now you got to do some extra uh you know uh security they got to frisk you and they you know they, they they check through your bags and so you just you know randomly pulled and I, and I and i remember thinking well i mean is this some kind of mistake because this is lily is you know she's a baby she's not even one years old and they said, no, no, we got a screener. So they had to call somebody in for a pat down. They said, oh, female assist because it's a, you know, she's a female. I guess they could tell she was a baby because, you know, she's dressed in all pink. Uh, but so they had to go get a woman to do it because a man is not able to pat her down, even though, you know, she's not even one years old. I mean, she's really got nothing to pat. Uh, but the whole thing is ridiculous because they're, they're, they're not even looking at the fact that the person who they drew for random screening 
is an infant. I mean, you know, it's a good thing, you know, she didn't have a load in her diaper. I mean, what what if they, you know, would they have completely expected that? Maybe they thought we were smuggling something in there. Uh, they probably would have served them right if they had a dirty diaper they had to deal with. Uh, but the whole thing is ridiculous to even have to waste the time of everybody on the line while you are patting down and frisking an, an, an infant in a diaper who is obviously not a terrorist. And and clearly, you know, we don't look like a family that's going to, you know, sacrifice our little kids because we're smuggling some kind of explosive device in a baby's diaper. You know, so if we didn't have the TSA, if these were private employees, then it wouldn't even be affected. But this is, again, another example of a complete waste of money because in 9-11, the terrorists won, right? Not simply because they destroyed uh, some buildings and killed some innocent people, but they won because of how we lost so much liberty and freedom and how much more screwed up our economy is. But that's not the terrorist's fault. That's our own fault. That's the fault of the American public for letting American politicians use that disaster to usurp all sorts of power and to destroy all kinds of rights that the terrorists didn't destroy. I mean, the, this terrorists took some lives, but they did, they're not the ones that destroyed our rights. We did that ourselves. The government passed the Patriot Act, the most unpatriotic piece of legislation ever. We didn't have to do that, but politicians took advantage of that crisis to increase the size of government and diminish individual liberty. But, you know, I, I, I got off on this tangent by talking about, about my flight. But, yeah, it would be so much better if these TSA agents were not there. You know, I would still fly. I would, I would feel safe flying on the plane. I mean, you know, it'd be so much easier to just, you know, put an, put an agent on a plane, you know, just like a security agent. You want to have an armed security guard on a flight. How much would that cost? I mean, a lot less than all these than all these agents. I mean, there's so many cost-effective ways uh, to prevent this. And of course, yeah, you can have a lot of screening on the check baggage, you know, I mean, in case somebody just puts something that might explode uh, and tries to check it through. I mean, that, that can be done uh, very simple. In fact, I think they've always had a pretty good screening on the baggage that, that you check in. So there's a lot of things that they could do that would streamline the, the flying process. But now, you know, it's so complicated. People get to the airport two hours in advance, three hours in advance. I used to get to the airport 15 minutes before my flight and I'd still make it. Right. You know, but now, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes you don't get there an hour before they won't even let you on a plane. But anyway, hopefully that doesn't discourage other people from flying out uh, up to up to Vancouver for this event. You know, one last thing I wanted to mention, I was reading this article about this uh, teacher strike uh, in Los Angeles. And, you know, the article that I read was like pure propaganda for the teachers, because, you know, whenever the teachers go on strike, they have to pretend they're going on strike for the kids. Right. They're they're going on strike because they they care about the kids and they care about education, which is a bunch of B.S. Right. I mean, they just want more money and they want more power, particularly when it comes to the unions themselves. But they can't say that. Right. So they always have to pretend that it's about the kids. And so the way they're doing it this time is they're claiming that the reason they're, they're on strike is because they're striking for smaller class sizes. Right. That you have class sizes that are too large in the school district. And so the reason that the teachers are going on strike is they want to force uh, these school districts to have fewer kids per class. And and that sounds great, right? We care about the kids, right? That's why we want smaller class sizes is because we care about the kids. And I agree that having, you know, 50 kids in one class is too many kids. I mean, it's better to have 20, 25 kids. I, I would agree with the sentiment that 
smaller class sizes uh, would be an improvement. But the teachers' unions couldn't give a damn about the kids. That's not why they want smaller class sizes. They want smaller class sizes so they can force the school districts to hire more teachers, right? And if they hire more teachers, then they are more teachers are paying dues to the unions. So the more teachers that are on government payrolls, the bigger the unions get, the more clout they have, the more money they have, the more power they have. And that's why they're going on strike. It's not about the kids, right? I mean, they couldn't care less about the kids. The teachers' unions exist for the benefit of the unions themselves. And of course, you know, one way they can have more teachers is to have fewer administrators. We have so many people that work in the school districts that are also union members that aren't in the classrooms. If we could get rid of a lot of those people, we could free up some money so that we can actually hire more teachers and fewer administrators. But no, they just want to maximize the number of people on government payrolls that are unionized because, again, it just gives them more political power and more money, which is all this is about, right? If, if we really cared about the kids, right, what would we do? Well, how about vouchers? Hey, if you want smaller class sizes, how about giving out vouchers so some of the kids in the public schools can then go to a private school? That would reduce class sizes in the public schools because more kids would be going to private schools, right? How about that? No, they don't want to be in favor of that, right? Because that interjects competition into the education system, which is something they don't want. In fact, if you really want to do what's right for kids, forget the vouchers. Just get rid of government education entirely, right? Just eliminate government schools. You know, and people think, oh, this is terrible. I mean, if we eliminate government schools, how are kids going to get educated? Well, we don't have government farms. How do people eat? Governments don't make our clothes. Why aren't we all running around naked? I mean, education is an important thing, right? All parents want their kids to be educated, right? And so if there's no government education, do you think we're all just going to raise a bunch of morons? No, we're going to buy education in the free market just like we buy food for our kids, just like we buy clothes for our kids, just like we buy everything that our kids need. We would buy education. The difference is when you buy education through a private seller versus buying it through the government, which is not really buying it. The government is taking your money through taxes and then providing you supposedly education for free, but you're buying it with your taxes. But when you get it through the government, it's lousy, right? Just like anything that you were going to get. If the government was going to give us food, it'd be lousy food. If the government was going to supply us with our clothing, it'd be lousy clothing. I mean, look at these socialist countries. Look at how the Chinese used to dress. Uh, under under communism, right? Look at those. Yeah, you know, they all they all looked exactly the same in those little you know outfits that they wore. And, and they, what did they eat, right? You get lousy food, you get lousy clothes when the government supplies it, and you get lousy education when the government supplies it. It's no different, right? How do you get a good product? Competition. There's no competition with government. You got to have a profit incentive, right? You got to have a free market. You got to have entrepreneurs trying to educate our kids. Uh, for less money, but at higher quality. So if we got rid of government schools and we got rid of all the taxes that fund government schools, then all that money would be in the private sector. And then parents would be able to buy the best education for their kids. Now, I know some people would think, well, what about really, really poor kids? Well, they'll have scholarships, right? There's always going to be scholarship. There's always going to be some extra money. And the schools will be able to allow kids uh, to come into the schools that don't have the money, 
And so, you know, we're not going to be uh, a bunch of idiots if we don't have government schools. In fact, we have government schools and we're educating a bunch of idiots because we keep so many of our kids in government schools. They don't learn anything. They would actually learn something if they were in private schools. And also, by the way, too, when you get something for nothing, that's what it's worth, right? When a lot of these parents, you know, their kids are going to school, you know, they're not actually paying for it directly. So, you know, they don't necessarily make sure the kids go do the homework sometimes or they're not as accountable. Some of the parents, of course, not all the parents, but every parent, if you're actually writing a check and paying for the school, well, you're going to make sure the kid does the homework. You're going to make sure you're getting your money's worth because you're buying the education directly. So I think the parents would be, all the parents would be far more involved. But the idea that parents don't give a damn, that if the government didn't force kids to go to school, that if the government didn't provide public education, that nobody would be educated, that no one would go to school, that is complete absurd. That is the idea that liberal elites have, right? That but for them, but for the government, we're all a bunch of idiots. And nobody is going to do the right thing unless they're forced to do the right thing by the government. You know, in general, people will do what's best for themselves including their kids, because no one cares more about your kids than you, right? The government doesn't give a damn about you or your kids, right? So I'm not going to trust the government to make the right decisions for me or my kids. I'm going to make the right decisions for me. I'm going to make the right decisions for my kids because I love my kids, right? I'm, 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 I'm their father, right? You know, the government doesn't have any relationship, right? So why people would want to entrust the livelihoods of their kids to some nameless third party who doesn't even know them, uh, so the the article, though, when I was reading the coverage of it, the uh, the newspaper bought into this whole idea because I read this article. and It was all about how, hey, normally they're on strike for more money, but this time it's not about themselves. It's all about the kids. They're going on strike because they they want smaller class sizes. B.S. You know, the media is buying into this propaganda and helping the teachers unions, you know, pull the wool over the public's eye by pretending pretending that this strike has anything else other to do than union power and union money.